Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Journalists Michael Smith and Jonathan Franklin talk about the COVID-19 outbreak on the cruise ship Zandam in March 2020 while on a voyage around South America. Prevented from docking anywhere, the 1,200 mostly elderly passengers from the U.S., Europe, and South America, along with 600 crew members, were stranded at sea as the virus spread on the ship. Several people died. Smith and Franklin discuss what happened aboard the Zandam during those early days of the pandemic, the actions taken by Holland America after learning about the outbreak, and the eventual safe harbor given to the Zandam in South Florida. Their book is titled Cabin Fever. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Still unclear where passengers aboard the Zandam and Rotterdam cruise ships will dock. Two people aboard the Zandam have tested positive for COVID-19, and 189 passengers have reported flu-like symptoms. Four have died. It is roughly two days from South Florida. We would like to have medical personnel simply dispatched to that ship. Governor DeSantis said letting the ship dock in Fort Lauderdale would be a mistake. I would like to ask Governor DeSantis... What his decision would be if his mother was on this ship. Andrea Anderson and her husband Rob have been traveling on the Zandam since March 7th. How would he feel if another passenger dies because they are not able to receive the proper medical care on the ship that they would have received in the hospital? Michael Smith and Jonathan Franklin are with us, and their new book, Cabin Fever, tells the story of the Zandam in the early days of the pandemic. Jonathan Franklin, let me start with you. As we learn in your book, there were really hundreds of cruise ships around the country, or country, globe, actually, caught in the early pandemic limbo. What was it about the Zandam that made their story especially compelling to you, too? What I think that makes the Zandam so emblematic is that it literally goes out at the last moment. And you can see this in that the State Department, some 45 minutes before the vote goes out, is saying, alert, alert, don't go out. Elderly people should not be at sea. But it kind of felt like the cruise company gambled that perhaps one last cruise could go out. They're at the bottom of the world. They're in South America. They're headed towards Antarctica. So it seemed that this one ship and these 2,000 people aboard were one of the last ships to go out. And it really is a journey that symbolizes a lot of the horrors that we all went through. Well, before we learn more of the details, uh, Michael Smith, how did the two of you come to work on this project together? Well, uh, Jonathan and I know each other a long time. Uh, He lives in Chile, and I used to live there and and cover South America from Chile for a while. Uh, So we've we've always been friends, and we've always respected each other's work, and we have actually collaborated on at least one story uh, for Bloomberg Businessweek. So uh, when uh, I wrote the, uh, a feature story about this particular uh, cruise, um, Jonathan showed it to his agent who called me and said, you've got to do a book. And at the time I said, you know, I'm, you know I don't know if I can, you know, handle doing a book now. I have uh, a day job that I have to keep. It's the middle of COVID, got kids, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Jonathan convinced me that I should do it. And if he if I needed help, that he'd be happy to help. So I took him up on that very generous offer. Well, while we're talking about the business aspects that reads like a page turner and a movie, have you been approached about movie rights? Um, We've we're looking into that. Uh, We're hoping that that will turn out uh, the way we want it to go. And we're still waiting. So. We're open to any offers out there. (laughs) Well, you never know who's watching our interview. Jonathan Franklin, (laughs) turning to you, let me ask you about uh, another process question. So throughout the book, readers will find that you're citing documents, emails, etc. I'm wondering about how cooperative the cruise company and the government agencies were in your work, and secondarily, how challenging it was to get their attention as the pandemic continued. Yeah, as we were investigating this, we repeatedly reached out to Carnival and Holland America and got um, very polite, no, 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 no. They were both swamped 
and they were also probably a little bit scared. So we got virtually no help from them, despite repeated, repeated. Same thing with the government we fired, especially Mike, many uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, public access records, a lot of those, the, the CDC was ridiculously um, you know, stringent in what they gave up. I think HHS was also not particularly generous. What did help us quite a bit is that the Australian Parliament did a very deep inquiry into another outbreak. So through all the investigation done by the Australian Parliament, that's where we got hundreds of leads and sources and pages. And so that did help us quite a bit. Michael Smith, has the corporation responded to your book since it's been published? They haven't responded uh, so far. Um, they they did give us sort of a boilerplate uh response to our book maybe a couple of sentences basically saying they you know they they try to you know they did everything they could to keep people safe as they always do um but we haven't really heard from them since uh the book was published either so let's get into some particulars about the zandam staying with you michael smith who owns and operates the ship well, the ship is part of um, Holland America Line, which is one of the, uh, the the cruise lines that is owned by Carnival Cork, which is the largest uh, cruise company and one of the largest sort of leisure companies in the world. Um, so it's basically under the aegis of the Carnival Corporation. And this becomes an issue later on. What country is she flagged under? Um, she's flagged under under, well, Different ships are flagged under different countries. Uh, the um, the Zandam specifically is a Dutch flagged ship, uh, but the you know the corporation has subsidiaries all over the world in places like Panama um, and other places that are Bermuda and other 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 jurisdictions that are outside the reach of the United States. So it's kind of a complicated issue in terms of jurisdiction. Jonathan Franklin, tell me uh, more specifically about the passengers overall on this March cruise in 2020. Who, uh, what was the population like? Uh, Where'd they come from? What were their ages? So there's about uh, 1,200 passengers aboard this. They tend to be Europeans, hundreds of French, hundreds of Brits, Australians, Americans. Um, So it's a pretty northern hemisphere crowd. Um, They are, on average, 65, many of them over 70. And it's a nature cruise. You're supposed to see killer whales. You're supposed to see glaciers. You get lectures at night. Um, This was a sedate cruise. This is not some... You know, Caribbean, Bacchanal, where everybody is uh, is getting drunk. This is definitely a, kind of a special occasion celebratory cruise. You know, what, we found it remarkable that almost everybody we interviewed was there for an anniversary, for a birthday surprise. So it was, it was for a lot of these people, quite expensive. This, you know, there's people who had saved up for years for this trip. So there was a lot of, a lot of expectation that this was going to be a grand voyage. If there were 1,200 passengers, what size was the crew needed to serve them? About 600. So, so it's about... 1,800 altogether. Yeah, exactly. But roughly 1,800 overall, 600 crew and 1,200 passengers. So Michael Smith, uh, a little more detail on what the corporation knew on March 7th and 8th as people were boarding this ship to take off. Well, um, Carnival, of course, and Holland America say that they had no reason to suspect that uh, COVID would come aboard, mainly because they were sort of in a part of the world where there are very few cases, which was true. Uh, Argentina had about a dozen cases of COVID at that time, only, I think, and I think one death. Um, but they had, uh, the company had had quite a bit of experience, more experience than any other cruise line, I believe, in dealing with, uh, you know, the devastating impacts of, of a, now a COVID outbreak on cruise ships. They'd gone through the Diamond Princess crisis uh, off the coast of Japan uh, weeks before, uh, and um, and they were in the middle of the Grand Princess crisis uh, cruise, or I'm sorry, COVID outbreak off the coast of uh, California at that very time. And they had also gone through the Ruby Princess, um, like Jonathan mentioned, uh, which ended up in Australia. Uh, and these were all very serious, uh, deadly outbreaks that the cruise line had experience with before uh, the Zandam set sail. So they, they, you know, they had they, they had more experience than anyone else in the world, really, in, 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 in facing uh, a hor- horrific uh, disease like COVID on 
within the confines of cruise ships. And where was the CDC in guidance to these corporations and or passengers at this point? Well, the CDC was, uh, I'm not exactly sure. Well, the guidance they, they basically had given, given the experience of these previous outbreaks, which the CDC had to come in and really help a lot with, was that cruise ships are extremely vulnerable to uh, COVID-19 the COVID-19 virus in terms of an, of, of it spreading rapidly, uh, you know, they the experts would told told us at the time that, you know, a, a cruise ship is basically the perfect storm, if you will, for um, for spreading diseases like COVID because of its confined spaces, the number of people per square meter, so to speak, uh, and just the fact that, you know, it's just a place where a virus can really spread. So the CDC was, uh, t- you know, it, certainly warning uh, the cruise lines about this and they were well on their way to declaring that uh, basically no cruise ships could could leave u.s ports that came a few days later so the cdc was quite active and quite uh you know they they basically were urging cruise lines to take care but you report at the same time that the cruise lines were actively lobbying in washington to allow them to continue cruising so how did that work out uh, what was going on behind the scenes in washington between the corporations and the government health officials that's right um they did sort of ramp up lobbying uh, starting in you know probably in, in march or maybe before i'm not quite sure um, basically, uh, the thrust of the lobbying effort came later in 2020 after the CDC had shut, or the U.S. government had shut down cruising and other countries as well, basically worldwide, um, to allow ships to get to get back on, you know, in, in the water, so to speak, to, to, to restore cruising. Like they basically lobbied for the CDC to tell them what they needed to do to be able to return to cruising, what kind of protocols and to approve those protocols so that they could get back in business. So that was the thrust of the uh, sort of lobbying and, 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 and persuasion that they were carrying out in Washington um, quite intensively. So let's move to the Zandam itself. There were three crew members who are particular through lines in your story. One of those is the captain, Captain Smith. So Jonathan, tell me about Captain Smith. What's interesting about the Zandam and quite a few cruise ships is it, it hasn't really changed that much from the days of the Titanic. Basically, the higher you up, uh, the better your conditions. And it's very divided by um, both uh, race and uh, nationality. So Smith is Dutch, and many of the uh, officers on this uh, ship are Dutch, and he's risen the ranks. Uh, one of the things you can say that's very positive about Holland America is that you know they, they hire from within. So to become a captain, you've you know it's almost like being a, you know becoming an admiral in the navy. You've worked your way up. So Smith had kind of caught people's eyes fairly early on in his career fantastic leader, the kind of guy who would go down in the hold and, you know, look at the spare parts and maybe change some parts. He would go to the bar and joke with people. He was uh, considered extremely compassionate. And I actually would argue that his his ability to um, calm people in crisis was a major factor. You know, there was no mutinies on this ship. So what we have here is a captain who really rises to the occasion and, um, is kind of trapped because he's both a captain of a ship and he's a pawn in a big corporation. So we were never able to fully understand how much autonomy he has because uh, he is taking orders uh, from from shore th- throughout much of this. But in some key moments, you can definitely see powerful leadership, and he becomes a voice a voice of um, of cohesion aboard this ship. Michael Smith, a crew member we hear throughout from, is Erin Montgomery. Who is she? Well, Erin is a is a very interesting woman. She, um, you know, she's a she's she's a mom who basically, uh, once her kids got got a bit older, decided she wanted to go back to work, and 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 she's a chef by training, uh, and she got her first job on on Hall America Cruise Lines by being a sort of celebrity chef on board where she would she would give sort of you know sort of like the reality shows you see about celebrity chefs uh but you know doing episodes on board for the for the passengers and she's a she's a remarkably um gregarious and uh charismatic woman who uh who was just perfect for that kind of job 
But shortly before the um, the Zandam cruise, uh, a couple of months before, she got promoted to a new position of uh, sanitation officer. And this was a position that was created in the in the wake of um, a, uh, a federal case against Carnival for illegally dumping um, wastewater in U.S. waters. And as part of their uh, plan to to you know to to better their ways, so to speak, and comply with the law, the company uh, created this post and put people like her on its ships, or at least on that ship. So her job was to basically police all the um, the sanitary uh, you know regulations, so to speak. Make sure there's enough chlorine in the pool. Make sure the uh, dishwashers are hot enough so they don't get food borne outbreaks and to make sure that all the medical records were were being kept properly and procedures were being followed. So that was her job going into uh, this particular cruise. Uh, and she directly oversaw uh, all the folks who were responsible for, um, for washing dishes and disposing of garbage and sort of that end of the, the operation, so to speak. Um, so that's, that's, that's basically who, who Aaron is. And, uh, and that, knowledge base and her her mission her her responsibilities sort of led her to really pay a lot of attention uh to what was happening uh when um it became apparent that that covid was aboard jonathan franklin one of the people who reported to her who is another major character in your tale is Wiwit widarto did i say his name correctly yes you did okay tell me about him so Wewit is both uh, a remarkable man and a symbol of a lot of the people who end up working on cruise ships because a lot of the times what the cruise companies need are very hardworking people who speak English, who they can pay pretty much minimal wages because the contracts that Wewit and many, you know, hundreds of people from, from Indonesia, where he's from, or from Thailand, um, tend to work not below the waterline, but definitely rungs below um, the, the officers, of course, and the passengers. They have kind of a second world that you probably never see, even if you're on a cruise ship all the time. And Wewit's working in a laundry room, and he's working on, on contracts that say, for example, could be six months contract, and they're working seven days a week. They're working minimum probably 10 hours, um, often more than that, in pretty stifling uh, Conditions, you know, there's no windows there. They're in. They're doing laundry. They're sewing uniforms. They're, uh, you know, ironing sheets. So he's part of this kind of invisible army that's underground, that you know, out of sight uh, from 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 the passengers, who's uh, really toiling toiling day and night. And Wewit um, is remarkably uh, committed to the company. He's worked there for decades, and he sends. You know, he sends money back home to his uh, two sons and his wife back in Indonesia. We should also establish what are the medical facilities on board a ship of this size? You want to take that, Michael? Sure. Um, so uh, the Zandam, like many, well, every cruise ship has a medical center, as they call it, which is, uh, you know, sick bay, as they used to call it in Star Trek. Um <laughs> Um, that is a, you know, it's a, it's a decently equipped, uh, facility, but small, um, in the case of the Zandam, there were two doctors and I believe four nurses, uh, to, you know, to, to give care to all the passengers and crew. Um, you know, the cruise lines have really perfected this over the years, uh, and by design, they feel like, you know, they, that, that level of staffing in normal conditions, they're pretty confident that the, that it's enough. Um, you know, the, the medical center has, you know, some sophisticated equipment. It had, uh, in, the, in the case of the Xanam, a ventilator, uh, oxygen therapy supplies, uh, EKG kind of stuff, you know, stuff to monitor heart issues, um, and, and just all the basic uh, medical stuff you need to, to stabilize a patient if they have even serious problems long enough to get them ashore to get care in a, in a proper hospital. And that's that's basically the way medical care was designed on the Zandam and, you know, across the industry. Since and that's the, what they had going into this. Since the corporation was aware and had dealt with uh, outbreaks on other of its ships, did they stock any COVID tests or any masks for crew and passengers? Um, they did not stock any COVID tests uh, before departure. Um the company told me when I was reporting this story that uh, the reason was they, number one, they were very hard to get. 
and remember back at the beginning of COVID, uh, the, out- the pandemic, they were hard to get. I mean, that's probably true. Uh, and also they felt that they were not completely reliable, which you could argue was what was going around. But the point being, they did not have any on board. So, uh, Jonathan Franklin, Aaron, as the sanitation officer, you write, was confident that they'd kept the virus off the ship. What were the protocols as passengers embarked? Well, the, what was interesting is that, you know, about 10 days before uh, the ship embarks, one of the chief medical doctors, uh, Grant Tarling, starts posting some videos. And these are short videos, three minutes, four minutes. In retrospect, they're, they're almost tragic. Uh, because you can see that on one hand, he as chief medical doctor knows that there's a, there's something could get aboard, but he tells the passengers, for example, uh, bring your own thermometer, uh, cough into your arm like this, and he shows them how to cough like that. And he almost offhandedly, he says, you might want to consider checking to see if your travel insurance has medical evacuation. And he says it as if he was like talking about the difference between like cashews and peanuts. It's, it's such an offhand little remark that in retrospect, it's remarkable because the passengers are promised certain things. They're told that there'll be temperature checks. They're told that people who have been through certain countries, including China, will not be allowed aboard. And what our reporting uh, alleges and shows, I believe, is that the passengers we talked to were were stunned. You know, they said that instead of looking at their passports, they just kind of opened it up and said, "Whatever, come aboard." Or and then many of them said they had, did not have their temperatures taken. Um, there was people aboard who bragged they had just come from China. So it seems that there was talk of certain enhanced screening. But of all the people, the passengers we talked to, the most remarkable thing was they would board the ship and they would say oh my God, you know, weren't they supposed to screen? What happened to the screening? And the passengers among themselves were already worried upon boarding that they hadn't been screened. So Michael Smith, how long before the first cases appeared? Um, Well, uh, the first cases started appearing um, at least sort of publicly, you know, say roughly a week, a little bit more than a week into the cruise after they stopped in a in a in a port called the last port they were able to stop, which is called Punta Arenas. Um, I, I just wanted to back up one one second uh, about the protocols in place. Um, what Aaron was speaking about, you know, one thing they did do, for example, was they put plexiglass between the you know the buffets and the uh, and the food. Um, you know, they they stepped up. Uh, this is according to Aaron McDonald. They stepped up. Um, you know. Uh, cleaning, deep cleaning, uh, and other sort of procedures aimed at, at you know, you know, like more, more hand sanitizer stations, that sort of thing, typical things that we were all trying to do. So that's why she felt sort of confident. And, you know, the, the cruise line, they, they did sort of have a questionnaire that you had to fill out. Um, and, you know, it's unclear if, you know, uh, you know, some people probably, you know, did, you know, did have some screening when they got on the ship, but it certainly was wasn't wasn't across the board even. Um, anyway, I'm sorry, uh, the, but yeah. So the, the the virus really started becoming apparent uh, about a week into the cruise. Although other you know some of the people we talked to, looking back on it, say that they noticed certain people were getting sick. The people were coughing even before then. Um, so you know that. That leads some people to believe that the, that the virus really got on the ship almost maybe from the beginning. But we don't know anything publicly. No one has really done a comprehensive study that's been released that traces it back to the very beginning. So it's very difficult to say exactly what happened. Erin Montgomery herself fell ill with symptoms she thought were COVID because they matched up with what she'd been learning. How soon into the cruise did, did she get sick? She started feeling sick very, very soon, um, and um, of course, she couldn't. She had no way to really uh, confirm that it was COVID nineteen because there were no tests. Um, but she uh, was pretty confident that that's what she had, just from the symptoms and just how horrible she felt, and also uh, because she had had training at the CDC for this job as sanitation officer you know, back in you know a couple of months before this ship left. And uh, there was a lot of talk about, you know, what is COVID like? What are you, what are the symptoms? What do you feel like? Here's when you sort of can be pretty sure that's what it is. So based on all that, she was pretty confident that she got 
uh, sick really early on, maybe even at the very beginning. She's just not sure. So Jonathan Franklin, if she's the sanitation officer and she's exhibiting all the symptoms of COVID, was she empowered to take steps to change the approach on board ship? You know, we spoke quite a bit with Aaron and we spoke to a lot of people aboard the ship and it seemed that there was kind of a see no evil approach. You know, the, there was not um, not clearly a willingness to to acknowledge, you know, she she at one point is kind of like a lone warrior. She describes like uh, her going through some of the medical files, which she has access to, and she has to, you know, double check sanitary things. And it's almost like this crazy kind of uh puzzle that she's putting together you know it wasn't the medical team it was you know the sanitation officer and she started writing down on a piece of paper you know room numbers and looking and she kind of discovers that there's a cluster of an outbreak and she she informs her superiors but but there was many times when passengers would complain about coughing and the staff would say let them cough there was a Aaron, Aaron and the other people aboard seemed to seem to feel there was almost an effort to not find COVID aboard So let's go to March 14th, Michael Smith, which becomes a very fateful day. You referred to it earlier. It was the last port of call for the ship uh, on its standard voyage. A thousand passengers are disembarking in this uh, city or town of Punta Arenas, Chile. That's correct. And the mayor there was very worried about this. How did the Chilean government respond to his concerns? Well, yes, uh, the mayor of that city, which is probably it's the most southernmost big city, sort of speak, in the world, um, closer to the Antarctic than Santiago, the capital of Chile, just to perspective. Anyway, the mayor was quite concerned uh, because, um, you know, they, uh, you know, they were terrified of cruise ships uh, bringing people who were infected with COVID because COVID really, you know, they really hadn't had hardly any cases up until that point. Um, they had had one, I think one of the first known cases in Chile was in fact someone who had come on a cruise ship through town just a few days before and ended up on the next stop getting very, very sick, a British man who had to be evacuated from that cruise ship, not not the Zandam. So when he saw the Zandam coming into port, he was very concerned. And the Chilean government was also concerned. Um, They sent a larger than normal contingency of um, health officials onto the boat to look at the medical records, talk to the doctor, doctors on board and, and, and just get all assurances they could that there was no one with any suspicious symptoms, you know, who were getting off into their town. And once they did that exhaustive review, they allowed uh, the the passengers off the ship. Um, But yes, there was quite a bit of concern that this ship was going to bring the plague, so to speak, to their town and to that part of the world. Did you follow up? Because in fact, there were cases on board the ship and both, uh, I believe, crew members and the uh, uh, passengers, a thousand passengers disembarked. Did it cause an outbreak in Punta Arenas? Well, the uh, main... I haven't, I wasn't able to get any documented proof, but the mayor is convinced that, um, you know, people after that ship came through who got COVID on board somehow spread it in his town because cases did start to go up after the ship left. But there's no documentable proof, so to speak, that that's the case. It's hard to tell because there were other ships coming through. There were other factors, of course. But the mayor certainly and other, you know, others in, the, in that town were, were concerned about that. Jonathan Franklin, you tell the story of one of uh, the couples on board, Claudia and Juan, who visited a friend who ran an eyeglass shop in the duty free. What was the warning that they got from that proprietor? Well, what was happening at this point, the proprietor is like, get back, get back on the ship uh, and, you know, find, find a safe haven. There was. It was remarkable that the people on land, both in the Falkland Islands, the previous stop, and in Punta Arenas, both seemed to have a much higher sense of alarm than the people on the ship. The, the ship did seem to be almost this kind of this floating bubble because uh, in both places, locals would warn people who came off the ship, um, you know, find find you know find a safe way home and soon. And we even see this in Punta Arenas at one point as the boat's about to go back out to sea, one couple grabs her suitcases and rushes off and all of their passengers are almost laughing at them like what you're you're abandoning it and to their credit this one this one couple saw the light and got off the ship but you know Juan and Claudia are, are warned you know you find your way home this is you know a tsunami is coming 
So what, uh, when the, the ship left that port and went back to sea, at what point did the no-sail order be issued, become issued, and who issued it? Um, why don't you take that, Michael? Okay. Um, right. So they, uh, you know, the everybody got off for the day trip into the town. They got back on, and the ship left that evening. The, you know, stayed basically a day. Uh, and the plan was to go down uh, a bit further south to a beautiful region of the of, of um, uh, Patagonia called in Argentina called Ushuaia. It's a really really pretty town. Um, and to go through the fjords, it's a typical cruise ship route. But um, you know, later that night, uh, the Chilean government. Well, first of all, the Argentine government said we're closing all our ports, including Ushuaia, where the ship was going. And the Chilean government said uh, we are going to close all our ports, well, Punta Arenas, uh, by morning. So, you know, you have to make you have to make uh, plans for that. And so the captain, um, you know, sort of in you know, full out made a U-turn, so to speak, uh, and tried to race back to. Punta Arenas to be able to get people off the ship uh, before they close the port. So Captain Smith, uh, Jonathan Franklin, announces over the intercom, the cruise is ending. What were passengers told would happen to them then? Well, at first they were told that they would um, be able to go ashore and book flights. Um, there was a thought that they would be able to um, to book flights at some point. They were there was a there was a thought that they could be able to work some sort of diplomatic solution. Um, and there's it's kind of confusing for days for the passengers and for the management because there's a full on diplomatic push and there's a lot of thought that you know Chile has quite good relationships with the United States. There's quite a thought that somehow they're going to be able to create like a travel bubble. They'll be able to go up the coast maybe and convince the Chilean government to let them off, and they'll do a travel bubble that will be you know, sanitary from the coast to the airport. But there's a growing sensation uh, among among the crew and the passengers that they're kind of being stuck at sea, kind of orphans. And, and, and it becomes a, a journey to nowhere in a lot of ways. So just in terms of timing, the Zandam was out to sea and they received word that Punta Arenas was going to be closing at 8 a.m. the next morning, possibility of making it there. And then they get word what, Michael Smith? Well, they get word that, no, it's not a.m., it's actually pretty much that moment. So the captain said, okay, we're not going to be able to make it, but uh, we're going to, you know, in time. So, but we are going to go there and wait, you know, at anchor outside the outside the bay to see if, you know, outside the port to see if we can find a way to, to negotiate safe passage, so to speak. Um, but regardless, the cruise is, is, is going to end. And the plan was to, uh, you know, if you can't, if they couldn't, if they couldn't get off in Punta Arenas, they would go up north to a port off, you know, close to Santiago, the capital and do, you know, what Jonathan mentioned before, try to get people off there. That's where the cruise would officially end about a week. So things, things start really accelerating at this point on board the ship while all these negotiations are going on. One of the things that, that, people will probably find uh, interesting, if not amazing, is that on March 16th, the corporate executives essentially told the crew to, to actually create as many activities as possible to keep the passengers occupied and forget the unpleasantness. Did you come to understand, Jonathan Franklin, why that kind of order would go out if there's a virus of any sort on board the ship? It is rather remarkable because even um, even being generous with the idea that you know you have to do something with your passengers, you can't abandon them. This idea that um, you know the, the Carnival Cruise uh, you know motto is choose fun, and this is you know just stunning that they've already had two or three outbreaks, probably four outbreaks by then. Uh, they know they have an elderly uh, guests aboard, and they kind of pull a full-on Titanic and, you know, the band plays on. What was happening with the medical bay and the number of crew and passengers that were ill by this time, March 16th, March 17th? Michael the medical Smith. bay. Oh, go ahead. That's fine, Jonathan. Okay, so I'll take that. So the medical bay, you know, it's only really supposed to stabilize people. The idea is, in a normal cruise, if people are particularly sick, you know, you can almost always pull into port and get them in an ICU. But at this point, what passengers are telling us is, especially passengers that, that were uh, 
had their bunks or their births on the same uh, the same floor as a medical center. There's lines out the door almost. People are, you know, there's one of the most interesting questions we ask people is, you know, first cough. When did you first in, start noticing coughs? And at this point, there's just a chorus of coughs aboard and uh, people are lining up outside, both crew and passengers are lining outside the small medical center, um, you know, seek, seeking help. Many of them are not, you know, deathly ill, but there's, there's clearly just a, uh, a, a, a raging uh, outbreak aboard. And at that point, for a lot of people, it's just an, a horrendous cough. Michael Smith, on March 17th, you give readers a look inside the Carnival Corporation's command posts, tracking their ships at sea. What did you learn about what they were keeping an eye on globally? Well, uh, Carnival has a very sophisticated system uh, for uh for keeping track of the of, of, of all their ships because you know at that time they had about a, i think about a hundred you know more than the british you know royal navy uh of cruise ships all over the world uh multiple different cruise lines and they have so they you know a couple of years before they built a uh you know, sort of like a command center where you could see you know data about every single ship and you know where it is what what they you know what they have aboard et cetera et cetera what's going on and um and people who were trained to do that so they were uh you know i was we weren't actually there but uh from talking to people and just understanding how they work they were you know they, they were trying to maintain a, a clear and accurate picture of where all their ships were and how they were going to get them home because um, there were a lot of ships still out to sea uh, when they started shutting down cruising. So they had to find a way to get them to a port safely. And that's what they were trying to do with the Zandam. And it was complicated by the fact that they were so far from home, because home being uh, a port in Fort Lauderdale, that's the home base for the Zandam. Um, they were literally on the other side of the world. And and it was a sort of a hostile world that they were facing increasingly where not just Chile, but every country along South America, just like everywhere in the world, was really, really reluctant to let a cruise ship uh, dock because of the worries of spreading disease and the history there. And they basically said, you cannot, you can't stop here. The diplomatic complexity of this really seems astounding because the, the, all of the ports and countries that are closed to the ship, but then all of the different nationalities that are on board between the crew and the passengers, all of those governments having an interest in helping their own citizens. So how did all of that effort get coordinated? Uh, who was in charge of perhaps leading the negotiations to help the Zandam? Michael? Uh, okay, uh, I'll take that one for... Um, well, it, it was actually quite remarkable. Um, I would say uh, in South America, this, the U.S. State Department sort of led the charge uh, and not necessarily, I think, by virtue of policy from the top, because you remember the Trump administration was reluctant to really get very deeply involved in crises like these more than they had to. Um, but the State Department uh, diplomats on the ground and at some high level in Washington, you know, one of the core missions of a diplomat uh, posted abroad is to bring Americans home when they are in peril. That is their main mission. That's the number one thing they, 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 they are trained to do. So here you had a ship with, with a lot of Americans on it and they were in peril. And uh, so they really, you know, sort of moved into action. Other, other countries as well did the same thing and embassies in South America, for example, the UK. Um, and that really uh, built up to what happened in outside the Panama Canal. So before we get to the Panama Canal, I just want to give a sense, and we have about 20 minutes left in our conversation, of what life became like for people on board the ship once the lockdown was ordered on board, which was March 22nd. We found uh, a British passenger, Cheryl Deeks, uh, in a video of her cabin. This is a little bit later, but it still illustrates both visually and in her description what life was like. Let's listen. We watch the telly, spend a lot of time watching where we are, watching the TV going nowhere really. Um, my sister and two of our friends are in, this, in a cabin. They have the same amount of space for three people. I'm disappointed to hear that America are even debating 
whether we should land or not. I, I can't understand that. It's a humanitarian rescue. We need to get to our homes. Michael Smith and Jordan Fra- Jonathan Franklin are talking to us about their book, Cabin Fever, The Harrowing Journey of a Cruise Ship at the Dawn of a Pandemic. We have about uh, 20 minutes left in the conversation, and there's so much detail in the story, and I, I certainly don't want to give lots of it away. But let's fast forward to the de- decision to steam the ship north towards the Panama Canal. Panama has a very big decision to make, Jonathan Franklin, about whether or not it would let the ship go through. But we should say that there was another high-stakes rescue mission and so it wasn't just one ship, but two ships. So tell us about the arrival of the Rotterdam and what its job was to do as the the, uh, Zandam made its way back to its home port. Well, you have to remember that, you know, if you're you're a leadership at Carnival or Holland America Cruise Line, you've got this ship filling up with with, uh, increasingly sick passengers and crew. You probably have hundreds of people infected aboard, but nobody will let you ashore. So what they did was they grabbed an empty cruise ship that was off the coast of Mexico near, uh, near Puerto Vallarta and Mazatlan up, up on, that, on that part of the, the western coast of Mexico. And they asked for volunteers from different ships. And, this, and they got their fastest ship, the, the Rotterdam, and they filled it with extra medical supplies and extra doctors and nurses. And they looked for a meeting point. And the Panamanian government agreed to let them meet off the coast of Panama. So they have these two ships steaming towards each other. One is kind of the rescue ship, and one is what was being called increasingly the pariah ship. So, Michael Smith, how, how did the Panamanian government get to yes to allow these ships to pass through the canal, knowing that, in fact, there were COVID cases, many COVID cases on board, at least one, and logically, too, if you're transferring people between the, the two? How did they get to yes? Well, um you have to understand that they were extremely concerned about um, allowing uh, any ship with, with, with COVID on board through the canal because they were really worried that the canal pilots, uh, those are the people who, who steer every single ship that goes through the Panama Canal like any other port in, in the world. Uh, you have to have a local pilot who knows the waters. Otherwise, nobody gets through. So they were really worried that the pilots were going to get covid and not be able to do their duties, which would essentially shut down the Panama Canal, which would be just been a calamity globally. Um, so that's where they were coming from. But um, again, it came back to the diplomats, uh, not just the U.S., but the U.K. and multiple other countries sort of formed an ad hoc task, you know, uh, unified coalition, if you will, to work all the contacts they had with the Panamanians and convinced them that there was a way to get these ships through safely. So that's really what turned the tide, so to speak. And Jonathan Franklin, you tell the story of the pilots who volunteered, knowing there was COVID on board the ships, to to make the transit through the canal. And they did it in record time. What's the typical passage and how long did it take these ships to pass? Well, often it takes like 12 hours for the ships to pass, and these went through in about nine hours. And what's remarkable is that one of the impediments to actually uh, getting the ships through the canal was that the Panamanians said they were under no circumstances would they force anybody to uh, pilot these, these, these ships through the canal. And then they found they had a quite different problem. They had so many volunteers uh, that they were after to take the people who were least likely to become extremely ill should they be infected. So they're actually able to select from the volunteers. And I think it's important to stress that Panama really showed an amazing amount of humanity here. Panama had very little to gain by letting the ships through and then a lot to lose. And there was a sense among the uh, the union workers who who are pretty powerful and have a big voice and who goes through the canal and who doesn't, they actually thought that if they could figure out how to get the ships through the canal, then the rest of the world would be able to figure out how to let the ships come to dock and to port in different parts of the world. So the Panamanians were pretty clear that uh, they, their actions would reverberate around the world. Um, and I, th- I think I think it was a it was remarkable that uh, when it came down to the actual pilots who were the ones who were putting their lives on the line, nobody was going to force their hand. And those pilots were so willing to take those risks that they had they had a, you know, a surplus of volunteers. The final week of March and the, the the ships are now in striking distance of home port. What was Governor DeSantis' view about them coming home at this point, Michael? 
Well, uh, Governor DeSantis was quite, uh, you know, resistant, if you will. Uh, he was really worried about, um, and he said he was really worried about, um, you know, this, uh, basically this ship going up and, and, and just spreading COVID and an extreme rate all over South Florida. Um, you know, he was, he said that was his biggest concern. And the only way he would get behind this is if um, the cruise line made sure that everyone would be taken off the ship in one of these sort of bubbles, you know, not exposed to anybody else and taken straight to the airport, put on charter flights and out of Florida. That was his main priority. And he expressed those quite clearly um, to the consternation of a lot of people on board the ship, like that poor woman you, you know, you, you played. Um, so that that was sort of the what they were up against. And the Trump administration also was sort of not really very engaged. Uh, I'm talking about the White House. Um, again, the uh, the people in the in the in the federal government below that, like the Coast Guard, CDC, were just working miracles to make this happen. But they had to overcome first uh, the political resistance which luckily they did. And as the time and days progress, one can only imagine that the cases on board continue to increase and that some people at this point were very, very sick. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, there was a very dramatic uh, situation uh, shortly after they cleared Panama in the Caribbean where, um, you know, where they really needed to get some people off, off the ship. They were running out of oxygen for in the medical center and they tried to, uh, you know, they made a desperate uh, attempt to uh, to stop in a, in a tiny island that's part of Colombia called San Andres. Uh, again, they ran into uh, political opposition despite heroics by the diplomats involved and it didn't work. So and this just became more and more acute um, as the ship neared Florida. President Trump got in on the case on March 31st. Let's listen to what he had to say. What guidance are you offering uh, to Florida when it comes to um, the two Holland American cruise ships that are seeking to dock here? Yeah, well, I'll be speaking. I'm, I'm going to be speaking. In fact, he has a call in to me. We'll be speaking to uh, we'll be speaking to the governor and uh, we'll be speaking to him soon. But there's a case. We have two ships. There are people that are sick on the ship. And we don't want to be like they're going to be ghost ships. You know, people turn those ships away. There was a ship, as you know, in a certain part of Asia. And from port to port, nobody would take it. But in the meantime, you have people that are dying on the ship or at least very sick, but they're dying on the ship. So So I'm going to I'm going to you know, I'm going to do what's right, not only for us, but for humanity. I mean, these are two big ships and they have a lot of very sick people. And I'll be speaking to I'll be speaking to the governor. Let's do just a couple of. Michael Smith, that was March 31st. How soon after that did Governor DeSantis relent? Uh, pretty much the same day, I believe. It didn't take long for him to come around. Uh, you know, although, who knows, maybe he would had already come around. But yeah, I, I think President Trump, uh, when he came around, that probably helped things. Uh, and of course, the ship did make it uh, very quickly after that to uh, to Florida. April 2nd is the day, Jonathan Franklin, that the Zandam came into home port, and you have another heroic pilot captain, pilot boat captain, Todd Cooper, at the helm. What's his story? I think Mike will take that one. Mike, Mike had extensive conversations. Okay. It's, it's a remarkable yeah, story. Um, he's, a re, he's quite a remarkable uh, man. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time with him. He took me out on one of his, on, on the, you know, to show me how he does his job. And he, it was, it was a very similar case to Pan, to the, the pilots in Panama. When, as soon as he uh, heard about the Zandam outside of Panama, he started saying, look, we have to, to his fellow pilots at the Port of um, Fort Everglades, we have to help the ship. We have to do everything, anything we can to make sure that it comes in safely. And I'll volunteer to do it. And a lot of other of his, his, his co-pilots volunteered as well. Um, he said when he saw that, he could have just all he could imagine was his grandmother being on that ship, dying, and the world turning its back. And he said, "That's just not what you, what you do. It's, it's just wrong." So he was ready, and he rallied, and he um, he you know he he agreed to take this risk, uh, and it was a real risk of going into the confines of a cruise ship 
that had you know has a serious COVID outbreak and uh doing what he had to do to take it in you know it's just um i think this is really just one of so many stories of heroism and real courage that we found in researching cabin fever and what actually unfolded there and you know if it weren't for the heroism of members of the crew a lot of the passengers and people on shore like these pilots i think the ending would have been a lot lot worse so that's really what this is a story of 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 just how people step up uh and risk their lives for strangers because it's the right thing to do and that's what you've had on this ship and uh you know on, on shore in a lot of cases and the cap the, this particular captain was was a, was a good example of that jonathan franklin you you set the scene as the passengers disembark 13 ambulances lined up ultimately what was the fate of the passengers on board the ship how many died uh, and do we know how many got sick it was actually surprising that during our extensive research, we would keep finding deaths that had not been on the official record. It doesn't seem like there was any public acknowledgement of how many people died. We would say at least six, but there was times when we would be interviewing passengers and passengers would be passing us along to other passengers who had heard about people who had died. So uh, we have rough estimates. You know, hundreds of hundreds of people were infected, dozens hospitalized. You know, bit by bit, it's still being pieced together. But there was it was it was clear that there was at least two dozen very, very ill people. So when the ship comes in, there is, as you explained, a row of ambulances and they are rushed to ICU units and uh, several of them uh, die very quickly afterwards. Michael Smith, the story is not over for the crew of the Zandam. What was their fate? Well, yeah, the the crew um, were stuck in a um, in limbo, so to speak. Uh, not just on the Zandam, but on every cruise ship in the world. We're talking about tens of thousands of, of workers on ships who just were not being allowed to get off by go- by the by the government, starting with the United States. So, in the case of the Zandam and the Rotterdam, the crew was not allowed off because, again, uh, officials were worried about you know them spreading COVID. Um, so they were taken back out to sea for weeks and weeks and weeks um, and while the, the cruise lines were you tried to figure out a way to get them home because cruising was ending. Um, so the, it was this really, really uh, monumental um, exercise in figuring out how to get tens of thousands of people to the far ends of the earth. Like, like we said, most workers from Indonesia, the Philippines, et cetera. Um, so, and, and there were no flights and no, and also f- flying them in private aircraft was extremely expensive and that was not what the cruise lines really wanted to do. So um, they were in limbo for weeks and weeks and weeks on these ships and others as the cruise lines figured out ways to get them home. Um, we have about uh, five, six minutes left, and let's let's kind of wrap this all up. I'm wondering if there are particular lessons about the Zandam uh, or whether or not this is just a story of a moment in time. Michael? I think there are uh, important lessons. Um, first of all, um, the, the lesson anybody should take away from this is that, you know, if you want to go on a cruise ship, you have to be prepared for the risks involved. And this is not something that began with COVID. There's always been disease outbreaks on ships. It's the way it is. And you should really take that into account. And with a disease like COVID that is so deadly, uh, you know, and God knows what else is coming in the future, it's something to think about. Um, And uh, the other lessons is there are ways to make cruise ships safer, uh, which, uh, you know, the government has required cruise lines to implement. We'll see if that, you know, if that works. Um, But also the importance of uh, if you are going to go on a cruise ship, you should be vaccinated against COVID or anything else. In fact, you're required to be vaccinated on almost all ships, I believe. Um, But uh, keep that in mind, you know, if you know, just be up to date on your vaccinations for for all kinds of stuff, because it's really easy to get sick on on a cruise ship. Question for both of you. What is your takeaway uh, after all this investigation about the Carnival Corporation and the Holland subsidiary, about the decision-making and communications that it did during uh, prior to the cruise and, and the decisions it made during the cruise? Let's start with Michael and then Jonathan. Well, um, 
it's easy to look at the way it unfolded and say they knew enough to not send that ship out. And they could have made that decision and didn't. They had their reasons. Uh, it, you know, I have really no way to know exactly what what the you know what really really drove them. Um, I can't imagine, and I'm I know that they did not want this to happen and didn't think it would happen. So they sort of made a calculated risk and lost. So um, I think you know the company has learned a lot from that, and I think they're going to be much more uh, reactive and proactive when it comes to uh, the threat of disease or any any major material risk to a cruise ship. I think they they probably learned that from this horrible horrible experience, but. It's only, you know, they, they haven't been extremely transparent. Uh, they certainly weren't very communicative with us. Um, you know, we, we, we did our best to, uh, to get more of their insight, and it, and, and it wasn't very successful. Um, but, you know, I think, it, I, think, I think they certainly have learned a lot and certainly have had to adapt and change uh, because the government has required them to if, if they didn't want to do it themselves. Jonathan Franklin, you have anything to add? Yeah, I think uh, not necessarily on Carnival because I do believe Mike Mike summed that up. Um, but I do think it's important to, to to look at what one of the psychologists called um, post traumatic growth. He, it was very interesting. He talked about um, passengers and crew who survived this and not only um, came out strong but came out stronger. We had a couple examples of both passengers and crew who being able to to look at their lives and, 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 their, and their outlook towards what they would do after this came out with a much, a much stronger, more positive outlook towards life. So it was, it was remarkable to see people saying, uh, as much as I suffered aboard, it's made me a better person. I presume the Zandam is back at sea again? Um, yes. Uh, the Zandam started, uh, restarted cru- cruises this summer, I believe, not too long ago. It's back out to sea. Uh, Hopefully, this will never happen again on that ship or any other. Um, one thing I wanted to um, to stress about our, our 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 book, Cabin Fever, is you know if you read to the end, I mean, it sounds horrible. Everything we've been talking about is just just utterly horrible. But if you read to the end, you're going to see that there's actually a lot of redemption. Uh, like Jonathan said, a lot of the so many of the people we talked to who survived, which was most, thank God, uh, came out of this with sort of a new lease on life. Uh, they, they were determined to enjoy the good part of what's left of their life and not, you know, not, not sort of dwell on the petty and, or revenge or that sort of thing. So um, I think that's a really encouraging ending to the story, if you will, um, along with the, just the tales of heroism and courage. Uh, so it's really a story of human survival and redemption in a way, believe it or not. I'm going to say thank you to both of you, Michael Smith and Jonathan Franklin, for spending an hour with C-SPAN. And we're going to close a little bit differently today because one of those people who is perhaps a story, a happy ending story, is Anne Wegeman. And we found a video that uh, she made on March 29th in the middle of the lockdown uh, aboard the ship when things were at their most challenging. And she composed a song that we're going to close with. Would you tell us a little bit about her, please, Jonathan? So Ann Wegeman was a musician who was went aboard. One of her ideas was to save up enough money to buy um, instruments. And so she was from Holland, and she knew nothing about cruise ships. And quite early on, she was stressed. She was overwhelmed. She was having panic attacks because it was just so much of a workload. But she also spoke French. And when there was a medical crisis, she was able to be a translator. So she finds a mission where she's actually translating for the doctors, helping French patients recover. And she's one of these people who, when she's locked in her room, uh, she she finds a strength she didn't even know she had. And to this day, in certain ways, she's so appreciative of small things in life, you know, being able to go for a walk, uh, being able to go to a supermarket and buy something instead of having some some crappy food dropped at your little cabin door aboard a cruise ship. So she, she's a person who has had all sorts of what the you know the psychologist would call is a you know post traumatic growth. Well, thanks again to both of you. And again, the book is titled Cabin Fever. And here we are closing with crew member Ann Wegeman. This a lonely seabird.
Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 